there's a quote that I love that essentially says so much of the work of oppression is limiting your ability to imagine something else. And we know that with a lot of systems, they operate in this way really intentionally. And it's hard to find spaces of interruption, spaces of re-envisioning. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast presented by VIP Community Services that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the Courageous Conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Good evening, John. Good evening, Kiva. How are you, my friend? Welcome, everyone, to the Race to Social Justice podcast. I'm Kiva White, and as you can see, I am the black guy. And I'm John Kepler, and I'm the white guy. And Kiva and I share a love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepler, but more importantly, K for knowledge, what we try to impart in these broadcasts, what Kiva calls the K factor. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so, as you know, the goal of these podcasts is to promote racial and social equity and justice. And through honest and even sometimes difficult dialogue and conversations, uh, things that what we call here uh, courageous conversations. And John and I, we really have uh, found that these discussions amongst ourselves have deepened our, our own personal our perspectives and as well as our understanding of racism and our personal responsibilities in combating racism in this country. And we hope that these conversations will help our listeners, you, our listeners, and our viewers, as well as our guests on your own personal journeys towards racial and social justice. I have the wonderful pleasure of introducing everyone to Ms. Jill Merriweather. Um, Jill is a trained educator with a passion for equity. I have known her for the past year. I was introduced to her by uh, a, a mutual colleague of ours, Mr. Steve, uh, Steve um, Lewis. And um, Jill is, uh, has, has extensive experience as a district level coordinator and systems level educator uh, in her hometown of Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, she now consults independently with the Merriweather Group, which we're gonna get into that and um, um, find out about her work with that, with that initiative. And it provides her with an opportunity to expand upon a, a, her edu- level of education and her knowledge around equity and inclusion. Uh, Jill holds multiple degrees from Harvard, UNLV, and Johns Hopkins, and I am so delighted to have her here to join in the conversation. So welcome, Jill. Thank you both for having me. I am so excited to engage in conversation and to get to know a little bit more about you all in this race for social justice as well. Awesome. Awesome. So Jill, I know uh, you have this, this analogy about becoming vulnerable when you say tip your tip your toes in the water or get knee deep, right? Absolutely. And so I'm just going to go ahead and jump in and, and allow us to get our, our knees, you okay. know, knee deep in, in, in the water by, um, uh, you know, going right into some of your life's lived experiences. Uh, I understand that you did some research-based uh, work in, 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 in South Africa uh, during your college years. And tell us a little bit of how, you know, that experience has shaped your current work as a DEI consultant and educator. Um, and, you know, just how how has that experience widened your lens? Absolutely. So I, for a very long time, thought I was going to be a lawyer. When I was 10, I read To Kill a Mockingbird and decided, okay, I'm just going to be Atticus. That's the end. So when I was in college, I took a lot of different classes that inspected legal dilemmas, theories of justice. 
And I took a course on moral dilemmas in the law. And we watched a series of films that kind of parallel the Ten Commandments and then lead, read legal precedent that had similar types of moral dilemmas. So we read a case in which we learned about the South African concept of dignity and what it means to have a legal right to dignity. So it just piqued my interest in what does this mean? What does this look like? How do we ensure that there is a connection between the policies and practices and what we state and the lived experiences as a result of those policies? So I ended up taking a few more classes that piqued my interest in education. And I remember I called my mom and was like, well, maybe not law school. At this point, I had taken my LSAT. I was ready to go. And I told her, I think I'm going to teach. And so I went to South Africa. I spent a summer in Stellenbosch, South Africa, and I learned about post-segregation education policies and what that implementation had looked like and the conversation in regards to this idea of human dignity. While I was there, there were so many parallels between what I saw and what I heard in interviews and my knowledge of my hometown of Kansas City. So it really helped me to see a completely different system, to see a completely different culture. But I think as I think about the connection with my DEI work, it also encouraged me to do some personal work and reflection upon the spaces in which I have occupied, the path that led me to that space. So I, I think about the potential disconnect between what we may intend to do, what the actual outcome of our policies or practices may be. And I see DEI work as finding the space in between our intent and our impact and doing so both professionally and personally when we think about our journeys and our accountability as well. Wow. So that whole concept of, of intent and impact, I know um, I had the opportunity I have had the opportunity to sit in a couple of your training sessions. And one of the things that I, I really admire about you is your intentionality when it comes to at the very beginning, you share a little bit about yourself, <coughs> excuse me. And then you put that disclaimer out there about your social identities. Share mm -hmm. a little bit about that and why that's important for you to be intentional yeah. um, to set the stage um, prior to getting into teaching. Absolutely. So we know that we all have experiences that have shaped who we are, how we interact with others, how we make meaning of the world that we're occupying or the experiences that we have. And with some of those experiences, we may have areas of privilege, we may have areas of blind spots, we may have areas of oppression. And so I think because this work is innately and must be inherently personal and professional, it's important for me to surface who I am, not just what I do, but some of those experiences that have led to some of those filters along the way. And it's important that in creating that space, I also encourage participants to do this the same, to embody that vulnerability of reflection, to give ourselves grace, to think about those spaces in which we may not have been our highest self or operating from our most inclusive self, but the power of coming to this conversation and coming back to this conversation with the intent to learn more, to grow, to do better based on what we're acquiring as new knowledge. That, that leads me to... Uh... So one one of the one of the things that we found in these podcasts, some a theme that has been in almost every one, is there are two. One one is um, going back to childhood, 
and our parents and how our parents influence us. And secondly, stories. So could you reach back to your years before college when, and before you were thinking of law school, by the way, I, I didn't, I didn't dodge that bullet. I went to law school and I, it took me 22 years to find out that that wasn't my pathway. But anyway, go back to your childhood and your parents and so forth. How did that lay a foundation or didn't lay a foundation for where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question, John. So I, my parents are both Southerners. My mom is from Butler, Georgia, and my dad is from Phoenix City, Alabama. And so they very early, my mom is one of six, my dad is one of five. My dad played basketball, he played professional basketball, but one of the things that he always said when we were kids is what his mother taught him. So my grandmother said, I don't care what you do. The one thing you need to get is your education. That is the one thing that they can't take away from you. Once you get that certificate, once you get that degree, it is yours. So that was the one requirement for my dad is you get an education. Both of my parents not only modeled the value of education, they both have advanced degrees. My mom has an MBA, my dad has an MPA but they also paved the way for us to know the importance of not only what we know, but who we are. So I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. I've lived in Boston. I taught in Vegas, but I've been home for a little while now. And I think part of the reason that I am who I am, in addition to my parents, and the, the example that they set is because of kindergarten for me. So I smile because I was also a kindergarten teacher. So I, I know the impact and it came full circle when I got the opportunity to teach kinder. But I went to kindergarten in the basement of our church. And so all of my teachers look like me, not just aesthetically, but culturally. A lot of my teachers were from the South as well. So when I came to school, I had a lot of food allergies as a kid. When I came with oxtails and greens, my teachers knew what it was and would sometimes encourage me to share, right? So it wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't any assumption about who I was. I learned about where I came from. We talked about inventors that look like me. We talked about scientists that look like me. I tell people that I learned what Black History Month was in first grade because everything that I learned in kindergarten was about who I am and where I came from. The first time that my parents got a call from the school, I was at that kindergarten and we were talking about slavery in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. We had watched portions of Roots. And I remember this day like it was yesterday. Pastor Bestie was leading a conversation. And the question was, if you were a slave, where would you be in the house or in the field and why? And so little four year old me. I was the only kid as he went around to all 15, 16. I don't quite remember how many kiddos were in the class. Wow. I was the only kid that said I would be in the field. And he said, why? And I said, it would be easier to run away. Mm. And so I remember he came closer. I'm small. Pastor Bessie in real life is not very tall and intimidating. But when you're four or five and he comes closer to you, my first thought was I said the wrong thing. So he made me stand up and say it again. And as I'm saying it again, I'm like, okay, he's a preacher. I can't lie and say I said something else. And I think I said something wrong. And he looked at me and he said, don't ever let anybody take that away. You mm. are different. 
I love how you think. And he called my mom (laughs) and told her this one here, don't ever let anybody dim her light. Don't let her question what that belief is. Let her go with that first thought. So I never had another teacher that looked like me until I got to college, Hmm. but learning who I am, learning where I came from, learning, I remember the songs we would sing. I remember the Bible verses we would say, and Hmm. we were taught, we stand on the shoulders of greatness. We were taught it is your job to make the path wider for those that follow. And that became a huge part of who I am. I left that kindergarten reading on a sixth grade level. So my teacher set the sky as the limit and let me get there. Mm. And I left with a belief in who I was, even as I encountered a lot of different experiences and predominantly white spaces. You couldn't tell me anything about who I am, whose I am and where I came from. I already knew. Uh, There's so much power in storytelling. Mm -hmm. Because as you sat there telling us about your experience in kindergarten, I started reflecting on my own personal experience, and it, which is totally different. So I grew up in the North in New York. And number one, I didn't see any, any teachers that looked like me until I got into high school. Wow. Maybe actually, yeah, in high school. And so I just think the power of self-actualization in, in, in kids at that early age, you know, they say, a kid's a child develop, and you know this because you taught in, in early education. But the kid's most um, um, important years is zero mm-hmm. to five. Absolutely. Zero to five is when they start to develop a sense of identity and, and attachment and all that. And yeah. so it's just it's just really to hear you say how your kindergarten, mm-hmm. you know, really had you you know watch roots. I didn't see roots until I was in high school. Really, I didn't learn about slavery. Wasn't wasn't really taught until later on in high school, like, like junior high, elementary, junior high. I think it was just regular social studies, American history, and and of right. course we talk about why some some elements of history is left out of history, mm-hmm. and I didn't really catch it until later on, until actually Alex Haley, you know, put out roots and you know, and I, you know, we we studied it in high school, yeah. but for you to be able to learn about that aspect mm-hmm. of your culture early on in life. I, I, now I understand right. a lot of the, a lot of the fire and a lot of, you know, a lot. And so, and so with that, I wanted to ask you, like, have you ever faced any acts of discrimination? Okay. And if you, and if you did share a time and, and how did you, how did you manage it? How did you navigate? Share a little bit of what, what the situation was and how did, how do you navigate it through that? I smile because it's difficult to pick just one. So yeah. I grew up in the Midwest, right? I'm from Kansas city. Um, and so there is this element of niceness in the Midwest and a lack of intentionality, right? So sometimes, and I think specifically about when I was a kid, when I was in school, sometimes it would be overt where you would hear comments specifically about people of color, namely black people. Sometimes it was jokes. Sometimes it was, I, ooh, assignments. I was in fifth grade and we were doing an assignment on the colonial era. And so you had the opportunity to pick a role and you were to learn really in depth about that role. So if it was a blacksmith, if it was, you know, whatever it may be. And one of the roles that was listed was slave. 
And so mm-hmm. I remember I raised my hand and was like, wait, <laughs> slave really wasn't an occupation that folks opted into. Mm-hmm. And so having to, in my little fifth grade, 10 year old self, speak up in those spaces in which I was the only one to be able to do so. I remember the discomfort of February and Black History Month, where we learned about Rosa Parks, where we learned about Malcolm X, um, and that was really the extent of it. But I remember feeling all eyes on me because I was the only Black child, the only child of color, more likely than not, in my classrooms. But sometimes it was subtle, too. So I remember when I was about eight and getting glasses for the first time, my parents spoke to the teacher and said, you know, we don't think she can see. So can you move her closer to the front until we can get glasses? Mm -hmm. And I moved, she changed everyone's seating arrangement. And I moved from one side of the room in the very back to the other side of the room in the very back. Mm -hmm. I can think of instances of my hand being the only raised hand and still not getting called on telling me that I am wrong about my identity, telling me that somehow some of the rules would shift once it became clear that they would apply to me. So it's it's both overt and subtle in my experience, but it was so frequent that we had a protocol in my family for when racialized events would occur. So my parents uh, were divorced when I was about eight but they stayed best of friends. So the protocol, I always had a cell phone, lots of food allergies, needed access to my parents just in case. If something happened that I couldn't handle on my own, so I would interject, I would say whatever. If it wasn't responded to, I would excuse myself to the restroom and call my mom. Wherever my mom and dad were, they would get together and then come to the school together. I mentioned that my dad played basketball. He was 6'11", but the nicest guy in the world. So his job was to stand by the door with his arms folded without sitting and without saying anything because he's too nice and he's going to he's going to give it all away if he starts talking. And my mom would handle it. But we use that protocol so frequently because it was not a rare instance that a racialized event would occur. Mm. It reminds me of um, um, the talk that we Mm -hmm. have to have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really it's really unfortunate that we have to have these mechanisms to safeguard us from, you know, the social ills that racism tends to bring our way. So I really appreciate you sharing that um, because I know that and, and, you know, I had to have I had to talk and I know I've had to talk with my son about being careful out there in society. So can I can I uh, take you then to Boston and Harvard? Sure. You're now mm-hmm. you're now 18 years old. Mm-hmm. You're in the Northeast, uh, different culture, different environment. Um, what did you experience there in the in the uh, similar vein? Yeah, so very different. And I will say that I was very much so in the Harvard bubble. So even though I'm in Cambridge, I didn't go into Boston very frequently, but it was so very different in that there were multiple cultures right away. So my freshman year, there were four of us living in the same little suite, myself from Kansas City. There was another girl from Boston who played hockey. There was another girl that was from Pakistan and another that was from China. So very diverse right away. 
So it, and it was not uncommon for us to, you know, walk from one class to another and hear multiple languages, see folks that had different cultural mm-hmm. backgrounds. So for me, it was really refreshing, but it was also an opportunity to really find my spaces. So I remember one of the first classes that I knew I was going to take African-American studies 10, partially because it's, you know, further inquiry and exploration into those elements of who I am that I hadn't really had since kindergarten, but also because the professors, Dr. Evelyn Higginbotham and Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. So amazing, but it was the opportunity to learn about myself in a more in-depth way, while also finding those moments in which I had no previous experience of some other cultures, in which I had the opportunity to get to deeply know someone else, whether that looked like a roommate, whether that looked like a blockmate, whether that looked like, you know, someone that was simply in the other class, but it was such a diverse experience. I really did enjoy college. And then, you know, with the coursework that I selected, also had the opportunity to to learn more about the intersections of who I am and what I do. So I ultimately ended up determining to be a teacher because of a course I took on um, gender, race, and education in the United States. And part of that class, the professor was phenomenal. She and I are still friends to this day, and she was my thesis advisor. But part of what that course pushed you to do is ask yourself, what was my educational trajectory? What have those things that I've internalized or been taught been about who I am, where I come from, what I'm capable of, and how did that influence my ability to be in this space today? So learning about other people, like Kiva said, the power of narrative, it wasn't, you know, all that's in the book, but speaking to who you are, bringing all of those components and layers of your experience was really powerful for me. So I have um, two members of our family who are middle school uh, English teachers in Austin, Texas. Ooh, and, middle school. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I, I've gotten really deeply uh a much deeper understanding listening to them talk about what's going on in the schools now. Mm-hmm. And I also have an education perspective. I'm uh, involved with an organization that uh, helps promote and support youth-based sports programs in Philadelphia. And our principal focus area is the middle school age. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of our programs are oriented towards that. And the the uh, pandemic has just just had a profound effect on after-school programs that we tie into and access to sports facilities and so forth. So I'm really curious you to pick up from where you you just said, you know, where you're the spark of interest in you becoming in, in education and um, and what you're seeing today, and also the impact of racism you know in the in the in the schools that are under resourced for the city kids you know yeah. uh, could I you speak to that sure that's that's a big question john and i think it's part of a continuous cycle of trying to figure out where we can make impact how we can move the needle forward and in a way that is respectful of our students and families 
and asset-based and thinking about what they bring to the table. So a lot of my friends are still teachers, even though I'm no longer a teacher myself, I'm still involved in education. And what I see pretty consistently is folks that want to get it right. Folks that know that there are gaps in the process, folks that know that it was not a system that was designed to equitably reach outcomes for all of our kids, to create spaces in which all of our kids or families feel valued and respected and supported, and really grappling with how do I hold my account myself accountable for being able to function within this system and leveraging the opportunity that I have to really create space for my students, to create space where I'm reflecting on moments in which I have been part of the system or socialized within the system as well. So for me, I think that it's part of a continued conversation that I have had the honor in some spaces of being in and coaching educators to think about the, the opportunity as well as the challenge of being in that space in particular in this moment in time. But wow, yeah. But can we really deal with it in the inequitable way that we allocate money? I, mean, I, think, I, I, <laughs> I think for me, reallocation of funds is important, right? We know that, especially because of a lot of the funding is based on property value and property taxes, our students that need the most, the system is designed to give them the least. And we know that. We know that's the reality. We know the realities of turnover. We know the realities of resources for those students. We know the narratives about those students, about those families. So I think in addition to, to the work that teachers are doing personally, the work that administrators are doing within their own buildings, if we really wanna systemically get to a different place, if we want to create opportunities and outcomes that are different, it requires that we re-envision the entire system, that we re-envision what funding looks like, that we re-envision even what access and achievement looks like. Um, I think for me, part of the beauty of being a pre-K teacher and a kindergarten teacher data was a lot different and a lot more fun with my kiddos, right? So a data point for me could look like how my kids come into the room that afternoon. Do they cry when they get dropped off? Do they run to their friend? And are they excited to be in this space that is my classroom? Thinking about those opportunities that we have to re-envision the system and leverage who our students are who we aspire to be is really what's needed to get to a different space. Um, and it's difficult. It's a difficult lift and requires multiple stakeholders working together and having that sense of possibility. There's a quote that I love that essentially says so much of the work of oppression is limiting your ability to imagine something else. And we know that with a lot of systems, we they operate in this way really intentionally, and it's hard to find spaces of interruption, spaces of re-envisioning. And I think some of that will be necessary at a, an expansive uh, yes. and systematic longstanding way mm. to kind of get to what you're thinking about of how do we do things differently for all of our kiddos. Mm. Yeah, you I sound did. hopeful. I, yeah. I have to be, I have to be, <laughs> absolutely. You, our kids you, deserve our hope and, and our attention, right? And our commitment to making sure that it's not an empty promise. Yeah. yeah so you, John talked about the monetary aspect of it. 
the structural aspect of it, all those things are kind of operating on a macro level, level, right? Mm-hmm. However, it sounds like for you, the, there is a, the micro level too, the connection with the students, the connection using your words with the kiddos. I see that as being in, invaluable mm-hmm. when you have when you have a kid that may be in you know an urban school district that is underfunded and under resourced. However, he or she is thriving because of the valuable connection that they have with a teacher in that school. Absolutely. And I think that is that is priceless in, in my opinion. And that's where we need to we need to continue to push towards that, you know, how do we how do we strengthen those cross-cultural connections between mm-hmm. student teachers, right? And and I, I know you do a lot of work with um, coaching with, with teachers. Because I, I heard you say that sometimes we have a tendency to be socialized into some of these, these aspects of, of, of oppression. Yeah. And there's a value, I think. And, and so think about that for someone who has, there's a value misalignment. I may be of a different culture or race than my student, and I value and I see him or her. I have put worth of wealth, you know, worth on them and value them getting you know growing up and graduating and going on to be something powerful in in society yet the systems that I'm around is not even uh, equipping me with the tools to help you know that student get to that place so that when you have value misalignment I think a lot of that's where a lot of the challenges where some of the systemic work needs to get done Um, but that that cultural connection with a with a powerful there's nothing more powerful than a, a young person that's connected with a caring, nurturing, responsible adult. I, yeah. You know, I, I just think that's such a yeah. powerful connection. So thank because you for I sharing that. Thing. I also yeah. think that we need to focus on how we sustain those caring, compassionate adults. Yes. Right? I yeah. was a pre-K teacher. We know what our salaries look mm-hmm. like in pre-K. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. We yeah. know what yeah. the hours look like in pre-K. We know what it requires of us as educators. And we, we don't give educators the care, respect, or resources that they need as well to do the kind of work that we know needs to occur for our students. So yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be complete if I didn't add that, that it needs to be focused on our students and our families, but also those that are providing the instruction, support, and care for those members as well. Well, you mentioned um, systems of oppression. And so one of the things, and, I, and we had a little conversation about this. Uh, Jill, in our past discussions, how those who are oppressed tend to be the ones that are charged with correcting systems of oppression, mm-hmm. right? Talk a little bit about that. How, what's your thoughts about that? Like most people who are, who are faced with oppression, they tend to be charged with correcting the very system that ha- has oppressed them. And there's a double burden and uh, impact on those individuals or groups of, of, of populations. What are your thoughts and feelings about that, about that, you know, that piece of um, responsibility? I, I think you're right that it does create this double burden. I feel like we, as individuals that work in this DEI space, it, it is not atypical that sometimes we are called forth, in particular as people of color, as those that are marginalized by these systems to speak on behalf of what that looks like and what it means to fix these systems. And I think there's absolutely power to elevating voices that know what the impact of systems have been. At the same time, 
it is imperative that those with the power to influence those systems, those that have been privileged by those systems, those that have been exempt from the harms of those systems or minimally impacted by those harms, take an active role to determine not only what I can do, but what are the spaces in which I have benefited? What are the ways in which I have been socialized to see this as the norm and the expectation? And how can I leverage the position that I have in order to create more access, in order to create more inclusion, in order to redistribute, as we think about John's question about some of those resources, to move things in a different way than they always have been done? And so I think even though it is powerful to hear and know the impact of the system and to lean upon the impact of narrative to really deepen our understanding, it is not on those that were harmed by the system to then you know, have the additional burden of overturning that system. It needs to be work that we are doing together and that it, there is a particular role for those that have been privileged by the system to play. Wow. Well, yeah, it gets to the issue of responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. It's not enough to, uh, Keith and I have talked about this. It's not enough yeah. to just learn and become more self-aware if you're a white, uh, uh, you know, 75-year-old white guy who's, you know, experienced the privilege uh, or people like that. It, it's, it's, it goes beyond just learning to, yeah. Yeah. to a responsibility to do something about it. And it could be little things. Mm-hmm. It could be just joining in a conversation instead of not joining in the conversation. And I think you you also bring up another point, John, that sometimes when we think about those spaces in which I have privilege, I may get stuck distinguishing my fault from my responsibility, right? I didn't cause this. I didn't yeah. create the system. Yeah. Right, the I did not thing. design yeah. it so that I can be yeah. advantaged. However, it may not be my fault But given that I'm in that position, given that I have that power, given that I have that access or a different experience, what is then my responsibility based on that reality? Yeah. Yeah, there are all sorts of excuses. One is, you know, well, I'm, my time has passed or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what can I do? You know, you talk about all these systematic things, you know, I can't do it. All I can do is vote, you know? Yeah. Uh, But Kiva and I've also talked about you know, the little things that are done at the grassroots level and the multiplier effect of all those things over time, uh, we're not going to correct the problems of racism tomorrow. Right. And after all, we haven't done it in 400 years, but but the little things, you know, can mount up. Mm -hmm. And then then maybe some big things come along too. Let's hope so. Well, I think it's the little steps that leads to progress, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Right. And so you, again, it's in, in a lot of the, all of these things have to really, I think it starts with self-analysis and, you know, like looking within thyself and saying, have I actually contributed to the problem? And if I have, what corrective actions do I need to take personally to not allow for that behavior to continue to add to the socialization of divisiveness or oppression or discrimination? Because we all fall short. We all make mistakes, right? And however, I always say, you know, grace is given to someone who makes a mistake. However, a repeated mistakes, mm-hmm. now that becomes a problem. Right. And I think that's what's happening. If we, if we don't check ourselves and, you know, our thoughts and our behaviors and our actions, um, then they become problematic in our society. And I think that's one of the, one of the big pieces that I, you know, I always try to teach is like we talk about 
um, self-actualization, having empathy and really looking, looking and being vulnerable to say to yourself, okay, I, I, I misstepped. Mm-hmm. However, I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do to put in corrective action. And I think that's the, that's the uh, step in the right direction towards, uh, you know, creating a just society for all of us to feel comfortable. Absolutely. Which, which gets to the point of the value of training. Mm. And uh, you two are, that's what you two do. Uh, that's how you met, I guess. And, I, and that's how actually how I met Kiva at a training. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'd like to, to, I've seen him train too many times. <laughs> I still can't pass all his tests, but I try. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, uh, so how do you approach training? Mm. What are your techniques? What's, what's your, and, and why did you start getting into the training side? Yeah, that's a great okay. question. So I, I've mentioned this before. I say it really frequently. I was a teacher. I was an educator. And so creating new learning, figuring out how to message information so that it lands with someone is something that I absolutely love to do, right? Whether that is big institutional concepts like understanding privilege or teaching the sound that the letter R makes. I love that light bulb moment when someone understands something differently than they did before. After I was in the classroom, I coached teachers. So as you think, as you ask me, what is my approach to DEI? Every step of the way, John, even though I did not know this is where I would end up, it was preparation for me to be in this space. So as a coach, you have to balance seeing your client. For me, it was teachers, seeing them where they are and a belief in what is possible. And doing so in a way that still creates the opportunity for learning and growth without them feeling less than or inferior or bad for where they currently may be. So how do we get honest about what that current reality is? And how do we together build this meaningful idea of where we can be and a commitment to doing the work to getting there? So I... Throughout my life, you may be able to tell this from some of my narratives of my earlier years, Mm -hmm. I have always stepped into spaces of talking about race and talking about equity, being and feeling hyper aware of my difference, but knowing that if I don't speak up in those spaces, I am complicit with what is occurring. I was a debater in high school and we had a phrase that says silence is compliance. And so even though it is exhausting to be the one to constantly speak up. And I've learned now to kind of pick my battles and preserve my own energy. In that moment, if I didn't say anything, nothing would have been said. Mm-hmm. If I didn't interrupt, the interruption would not have occurred. So having that personal comfort, doing my personal work of even coming to terms with what that had looked like for me, what that burden had required of me and those spaces in which I was still balancing that need to speak up and and make myself small so that I didn't become the target or the focus. But thinking about how it had shaped my reality along the way, as I coach, as I train, it's really important for me to start where people are 
and to make the information not abstract enough. Because just like you said, John, sometimes it is those big things. Sometimes it is those little things. And I want individuals that are in my sessions, clients that I'm working with, teachers, coaches, whomever, to really have a sense of ownership of what they can do differently as a result of these conversations. Maybe it's just simply questioning a pattern that I've had in the past. Maybe it's getting honest about what I've told myself about who I am or who other people may be. But what actionably can be different as a result of the interactions and conversations that we're having today? That's a huge part of what I seek to do when I facilitate. Well, John, John, you know, oh, go ahead. Go I want to ask a question because she says because so we have we have talked about this before, John, about the discomfort of saying something in terms of like a white a, a white a, a colleague responding to uh, issues of racism in the workplace, and part of that is like what do what do I say and how do I say it how do I say it without offending, and so here we have uh, a young lady who is uh, you know this is her space. And yeah. she's sharing how the discomfort. So I can only imagine the level of discomfort someone who is not impacted by racism to, to, to step out of their comfort zone and be vulnerable and speak out and speak up about something that is oppressive in nature or discriminatory in nature that they have witnessed. And I think part of that is, is what, what some of the work uh, uh, D'Angelo talks about in her book, White Fragility, is that it's, it's this fragile moment that a person would experience, like, what do I say? How do I say it? So Jill, I wanted to ask you as a coach, how, what, how would you coach someone, um, our white brothers and sisters on how to address a certain, uh, you know, issue of, uh, you know, something that they may have witnessed? What do they say and how do they, you know, what would be your coaching technique for that? So let me start by saying it depends, right? There, yeah. there isn't just one method for being yeah. the perfect ally in that moment. Right. So yeah, I think, that's the word ally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it really depends on the situation. In some instances, especially when there is some noticeable discomfort, right? Speaking up, even if you aren't sure, may look like asking a question. Tell me what you mm -hmm. meant by that. Say, yeah. it, tell me more. That's one of my favorite phrases because it's non-threatening, but it gathers more information and it gives you a little bit more time to process what's coming up for you and get yourself in a space where you can comfortably respond or create a little bit more space for other voices to engage and interact in that conversation. So asking a question, tell me a little bit more. When you say that, tell me what you mean. Starting by getting really curious. And I think in certain spaces, it's imperative that those conversations happen, especially if that comment is full group, having some of those conversations full group. I noticed that you said X, Y, and Z, and here's how it landed for me. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. That may not have been your intention in saying that, but here was the impact on me. Mm. sharing some of those, just having some, you know, in the back of your pocket phrases that can create a little bit more space, that can get you a little bit more information, and then stepping into those spaces with a little bit of bravery, right? I have not always felt comfortable needing to be the interrupter. But if I had someone else that was on my team, knowing that I was not alone was also powerful for me not needing to be the only voice of interruption is powerful and not in the meeting after the meeting, 
right? Yes. So yeah. if there is a comment that's made, it really yeah. doesn't help me when folks tell me after the fact that landed yeah. weird for me too. I didn't like when he said that either. So what yeah. does it look like for you, given who you are, to interject yeah. in that moment and not let your silence be compliance? Yeah. Especially if it's something that creates some discomfort in you or that you can see landing and creating some discomfort in other members of that team or other individuals within that space. But it, it really does depend. It really depends on the situation and the individual. You know what your skills are. <laughs> you know that yeah. you may be that voice that when your eyebrow goes up, that's all you need to do for the conversation to shift. Yeah. It may be that you are the voice that everyone is waiting to know what your reaction will be. So yeah. it, it does depend a bit on that situation and what exactly is said. That's, that's awesome because I'm thinking about a person in a position of influence and mm -hmm. something happens and they stay silent and they're in a position of influence and they don't, I mean, it doesn't have to be combative or confrontational, right. but I think, I think what you just gave is some good examples of not not staying silent, mm -hmm. saying something, you know, share more about that. I, I'm, that's, you know, that's an interesting perspective. How did, you know, what's help me understand. I'm, that's one of my mantras, help me understand. I, mean, I don't say, I don't stay quiet. I say, help me understand. I understand. I, you said this, help me understand. I, I, I just believe that something needs to be said. I agree. You said silence is, uh, equates to compliance. My mantra is saying nothing is saying something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we stay silent, it could, it could, uh, you know, particularly if you're in a position of, of, of authority or influence, it could tell everybody else around the room, oh, he, he heard that and he didn't say anything. Well, yeah. he or she must okay. agree with it. Or, and mm -hmm. so I appreciate you um, giving those, you know, um, giving those, those uh, tips to uh, I, say I, something. I, this conversation got me thinking, I went, I'm going down a rabbit hole here and um Maybe it's my old legal training that's leading me to this question. But, you know, when you're when you're trained to be a lawyer, you're hopefully trained to see two sides of every issue mm. and to not be judgmental, gather your facts on both sides. And then, so I'm curious about and the way I picked up on this was your question. Your last question, Kiva, was in your trainings of white people and black people. Do you blah, blah, blah. I focused on the black teaching black people. What about training and black people? I mean, this isn't black and white. Yeah. Black people have, have biases too, right? I mean, yeah. they have to just like white people. Yeah. So, so there may be misconceptions about white people or understanding why white people are having problems with this or whatever. So, so can you talk about that? I mean, yeah. Is that is is that a legitimate issue here? Should we be talking about that too? Absolutely. And I think yeah. what you're getting at, John, is spaces of yeah. affinity where we have mm -hmm. these conversations about race and equity and diversity and inclusion <clears throat> and yep. what that looks like within a commonality, right? So whether that looks like a space in which white people are talking with white people, which I think absolutely needs to occur. There are conversations that white folks need to have with other white folks that I don't need to be part of. Inversely, there are conversations that as a black female, I need to be having with other black people. And it creates a different dynamic for me as a participant and as a facilitator mm -hmm. when those conversations are had in spaces of affinity. But I think that you're right. The work that we're doing, unlearning the ways in which we have all been socialized because none of us are exempt. 
right? Whether you are a person of color, whether you are a female, whatever layers of your identity may show up, we are all products and socialized within some pretty consistent systems that have some really intentional aims, outcomes, and ways of being that we are all learning. So I think this work, it needs to be happening interracially and intraracially as well. And there are spaces for both aspects of that dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. With that. I thank you. I thank you for raising that issue at that point, John, because I know Toni Morrison dubs what we're talking about as race talk. Mm-hmm. And, and we all and we all engage in it. We all like. But, and so the whole idea is, so are we engaging in it with the intention to bring forth emotional or psychological harm to the other, you know, to the other groups? And I know I know for my inner circle, when we are engaged in race talk, we're talking about the system that we are impacted by, how it's influencing uh, our everyday life, um, how it influences our relationships with friends that we have that are that are because I have white I have white friends I live in a neighborhood that's mixed and I have white neighbors and all so how do I navigate and how do I I, I don't want to make sure that I'm not perceiving them as the na- the narrative that I see on CNN and all these other. So we engage in racial, it's, it's, I think all of us do. Um, and um, so it's just, it, so that's a really good point that you raised, John. It's not just, it's not just one-sided because we have to train ourselves. When I say we, I mean, me as a, a, a African-American male, I have to always train myself to have strong emotional intelligence, not to uh, promote perceptions and stereotypes. And I teach about the erroneous perceptions and stereotypes that are bestowed upon a person of color. And the same thing for me, I have to make sure that I'm trained that, no, every person that's driving a pickup truck, uh, uh, you know, with a Trump sticker on it is not, you know, is not trying to do me harm. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I have, can hold I have the same problem. Yeah, which other, oh, <laughs> you try to decide to decipher right. too. But I think that's a good point. Everybody's engaged. We all are engaged in what, what what uh, Morrison dubs as race talk. Yeah. The idea is, are we doing it with the intention to bring forth harm or or more social unrest and social injustice? That's the key. Yeah. Does humor play into your approach to training? Sometimes. <laughs> it depends. So you know what? One of my favorite tools, actually, John, is analogies. And as Kiva was mentioning that, I like definitions. I think knowing concretely what things are, what they mean, having common language in mind is impactful. But I like analogies because then they tell me how things function. When I think about the ways in which these things, these abstract terms, these large systematic things function, I can better see spaces in which I have functioned in that way or I've been impacted by their function. So even as Kiva was sharing that about race talk, I think about like, what does it look like to be in spaces of affinity that are based in my family? What are conversations that I'm having with members of my family that I don't need to be having with Kiva and John, but I know need to occur. And as we think about those spaces in which we think about our own privilege or experiences or blind spots, one of my favorite analogies, and Kiva, you've heard this one before, when I think about privilege, I think about it as being right-handed, right? There are a lot of things that are designed with my success as a right-handed person in mind. 
I can pick up a pair of scissors without fear if it's designed for me. I can write in a notebook without worrying about smearing. Even when I go to a conference and we have our little name tags on the left-hand side, why is that? Culturally, because when I reach out with my right hand to shake your right hand, you can still see my name tag and I can see yours. So there, I, I, there are things that are designed with my comfort, with my access, with my success. When I was in college and we had those little terrible desk chair thingies that were all connected, the vast majority in that room were designed for right-handed writers. So in those spaces of affinity, in those spaces where I'm communicating across lines of difference, where I'm communicating within particular groups, it's important that I have the opportunity to reflect upon my right-handedness, that I'm interacting with people that are not right-handed, that can bring some awareness to me of what that experience is like, and that can surface for me those areas in which I have been advantaged, but the nature of the system is not only do I get this advantage, but it's designed so I don't think about it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So finding the opportunity mm-hmm. as we think about the power of these conversations, it isn't just that I can tell other people about the spaces in which they are right-handed. It is that we think about those spaces in which I am too across multiple layers of my identity. Often we think big issue things, of course, our race, our gender, our geography, and all of those are important, but they are layers to each of us. And having a better understanding of those spaces in which I am privileged helps me be a better ally and leverage those privileges and connect with people that may have privileges that I don't have access to. Well, I'm left-handed, so I couldn't couldn't stand them right-handed. Desk in, in elementary school, they mess yeah, me up. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, and we talked earlier about stories, and mm-hmm. um, I've got a I've got a story that you reminded me of as you were talking about. And uh, the first training that I went through was at our church, mm-hmm. all white, all white congregation. Okay. The speaker, that the trainer, was a Harvard graduate. Um, a black man who I think is older than I am. So he was in, you know, he was class of 66, maybe. And his experience at Harvard was different from your experience. Uh, And he was, I think, from Maryland. And it was a holiday Thanksgiving. He wanted to go home. He had no money. And uh, so he hitchhiked home. He had a, he got a ride from a pastor, a clergyman. And um, and it became clear after a while, and they were talking, the clergyman, white clergyman, said to him, well, I don't know why you're going to Harvard, because you're never going to go anywhere in your life. Mm. Yeah. At the first opportunity, he got out of the car, and it was on a, a, a it wasn't the New Jersey Turnpike, it was some back road in New Jersey, the way he described it. And it's nighttime now. And he puts out, he puts out his, you know, his, his thumb yeah. and this big limo pulls up and he sees a bunch of white guys and, and he's thinking, oh my God, I'm, this is a, you know, it's cause it's a scary moment, but he opened the door and they said, where are you going? And he said, he gave, he gave it was some town in Frederick, Frederick, Maryland. And 
there's a group of four guys and they said four white guys, young white guys, and they're, they're having drinks and stuff. And I said, well, that's exactly where we're going. <laughs> and he took the ride and they, he said, we, we've got a gig. We're musicians. We've got a gig in Frederick, Maryland. It was the four seasons. Nice. So he used that story. Yeah. It was Frankie Valley in the four seasons. I mean, like, mm. you know, yeah, right, right in 1966 or so, whatever the time was when they were, were really big. So he right. used that story to talk about to white people about the fear of, you know, that being picked up by white people and, and being the, you know, uh, but it was funny too, because the catch line was the four seasons, you know? So I remember that story like it was yesterday. Yep. Wow. And the learnings that I had out of it. Yeah. So I thought I'd tell that because of the connection with the Harvard connection and everything, the difference between your experience and his experience mm -hmm. at different yeah. times of life. Yeah. That's so powerful. And the, again, connecting back to the power of narrative. That's yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting, John, you may have seen me smile. I was not going to apply to Harvard. My uh, high school counselor recommended that Grinnell in Iowa be my reach school. Mm -hmm. I had my wow, AP English teacher that told me, mm -hmm. uh-uh, you are applying to this school and this school and this school, and here we are going through all of it. So there were folks that were supposed to guide me that also said to me, don't even worry about it. That's not possible for you. So yeah. you, you'll, you'll hopefully watch our podcast with Ted and Anna McKee, mm -hmm. and you'll see uh, that same story. This is a story I'm hearing over yeah. and over and over yeah. again, and not one that I experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And my, so my I think I podcast that number one, I share the same yep. thing. Yep. My, my guidance counselor in high school told me to go. You hear this all the time, particularly because I played basketball. Mm -hmm. So he must have thought that that was my aspiration to be an NBA player, which, you know, I, I did at one point. <laughs> But um, that my got my directive was to go to a two year. You weren't six eleven, Kiva. No, I'm six two. No. I was five. five, five. <laughs> Maybe if you've been six eleven, you might have made it. Didn't you? Yeah, I might have made it. Yes, <laughs> yes. But that yeah, that's a. I think that's the socialization process yeah. that we talked about 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 the system and the structures. Um, and, and and you know, again, if you don't have if you don't have that adult, if you don't have that cultural connection, it sounds like you had that, Jill. I know I had that as well. Uh, if we look at the three doctors that the, mm -hmm. the young men from Newark who wrote the book, The Pack, they also had uh, uh, someone, an adult figure to connect them to and navigate them through some of these oppressive systems. And all it takes is one individual. Uh, and, and if your believability, if you believe in, 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 um, in them more than in yourself, then you're, you're, you, have, you will have some challenges. So. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad used to say all the time, the worst they can say is no. So you may yeah. as well try. Just go and for it. The best they can say is yes. And That's you never right. know. So and no. And so I like acronyms. So no, for me, N-O, all mm -hmm. that is, is when somebody says no, it just represents a new opportunity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. embrace that no, because all it is doing is, is, is going to, it just represents a new opportunity for you. Yeah. That's right. So speaking of new opportunities, at some point you decided you wanted to be a, an entrepreneur. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so how did that happen? And tell us about what you're, besides the training, what you're doing with your company. Yeah. So I had always done equity work on the side. Mm 
So I was designing sessions, I was leading training, I had the privilege of working for a school district that had a racial equity initiative. So I went through particular training in order to provide training and support for teachers and district leadership, but it was never the bulk of my roles and responsibility. When you looked at my job description sure, yeah. for any role that I had, equity was never part of it. Mm. Um, so I got to the point where I was working at an organization and doing DEI work. They had just started a DEI committee and absolutely loved it. And so the co-facilitator and I had a conversation. And at this point, I was thinking, OK, maybe I need a Ph.D. And that will be the credential that I need in order to have the skill to do what I want to do. And she said, where in the world did that come from? She said, Jill, you've been doing this for years and that you light up when you have these conversations. This matters to you. Why do you have to do this on the side? And in my mind, I had set up just one more thing and then I'll be ready. And then maybe this thing and then I'll be ready. So having the opportunity to practice, like Kiva started us off dipping our toe in the water and knowing that that was my passion, finding spaces in which I carved out a little bit more time or a little bit more opportunity to really do what I love. And then having the support around me to believe in me when I didn't necessarily believe in myself yet inspired me to make the leap. So I am following in, even though my dad was 6'11", my mom has very large footsteps as well. She was a consultant for a number of years. And as she retired, she set up the Meriwether Group so that she can continue to support a handful of clients that she had longstanding connections with. But now in retirement, she has discovered pickleball and has no interest (laughs) in doing anything that is remotely connected with HR, executive compensation, or any of the skills that she leveraged before. But I know what it looks like to be a consultant because I watched my mom. When Mm. I was two, my mom was finishing her degree and I would often be with my mom, right? We joke that I was in college at two because I was (laughs) and take notes. Typically, the professor didn't know I was there. I was just sitting and watching and observing. So I have always sat and watched and observed the path that my mom and my Mm -hmm. dad laid for me. So all of that kind of came together at the right time. And I decided to make the leap. So now I am full time leaning into my passion of equity and education through the Meriwether Group. Got it. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I, so I know you, I know you, who, I, you know, I, I have just one more question before we uh, wrap things up, but I know, I know you, who you're probably going to say in terms of your greatest mentor or influencer, who would that be? I think I kind of gave it away. It's my, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to Yeah. Yeah. And we need that, you know, we need, we, I think we need that in, in, in life. And it seems like you have, really strong roots and strong foundation of support, you know, and believe, you know, but folks who believe in you, that's very important for young kids. This is, uh, this has been terrific, Jill. And and I'm going to ask you one more question. Sure. Yeah. So yesterday I was on a uh, 
a big Zoom call with uh, 12 people for 90 minutes. And mm-hmm. the the MC of it led off by asking everybody to go around. And uh, if they hadn't already identified uh, whether they were his, her, him, whatever, in their in their little name thing to do so. And I was the only one that hadn't done so. And it kind of took me aback because I hadn't really, really thought about that. So what's going what's going on there? I see you have a you know uh, parenthetical identification. Well, what's going on there? And is this something we should all be expecting to do? Yeah, I so I list my personal pronouns because I know the power of being able to speak to who I am. Right. So even though it isn't a parallel struggle for me or a parallel challenge as a cisgendered female, I know the power as a black female from being able to use the language and nomenclature that resonates with who I am. So for me, what it does when we add our personal pronouns, whether that's to our Zoom information, whether that's to our email, it creates a space in which others that may have a different identity have more comfort in sharing and naming who they are. And it's it's affirming mm-hmm. that reality that who I see you as is not the most important thing. Who you are and creating space for you to show up as you are and feel respected, feel valued, feel affirmed and seen is impactful. So for me, I add my personal pronouns because I want to normalize letting folks be who they are, where they are, and knowing you can show up as every ounce of who you are, and I will see you, it will be a safe space for you. And even if it takes some additional learning for me, because it might, right? This is a space in which I am right-handed. I am a cisgender female. I am willing to engage in that conversation and create space for you, hopefully to create some more comfort and more connection as I work to be an ally across a different layer of experience. Well, thank you. So it's really two ways. It's one, affirming of yourself, Mm-hmm. But it's also respect being respectful of others. Absolutely. And creating right. some more okay. space, right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. Good. Well, Good terrific. Thank you. Wow. Uh, you. This has been a great session, and I've learned a lot. And it's nice to make a new friend. Absolutely. Nice <laughs> and uh, and uh, so do you want to wrap things up, Kiva? Yeah, sure. Yep. So we want to thank you, uh, uh, Jill, uh, for uh, for coming on today. And sharing your insight, um, sharing um, your, your personal stories. I really liked your, your childhood story, really uh, was impactful about, you know, your kindergarten uh, experience. So thank you so much for being a transparent. Thank you for modeling what it, what it looks like and sounds like to be vulnerable. Uh, thank you for engaging in a courageous conversation here at the Race to Social Justice. So we thank you uh, for joining us. Thanks, thank you to all of our listeners, to all of our viewers. Uh, who continue to support this program. We really appreciate it. Appreciate your listenership and your viewership. And we thank you uh, again, Jill, for being with us here this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. See ya. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. 